Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Uh, happy Friday uh, to you and yours. We made it. We made it to the weekend. Awesome to be here at the weekend. You know, I love the weekend. And so we're going to try to send you out on a very, very uh, positive, feel-good note this weekend. Uh, Zuby, from, you know, you guys know Zuby from Zuby Music. He's going to be here in studio with me today. And we're going to have a long conversation with Zuby. He's a rapper. He's a motivational speaker. He's a public speaker. He talks a little bit about politics. I think he's been on a lot of different shows and whatever. He's here in Nashville and has uh, granted me an audience. And so we'll get, I've, I've followed Zuby on social media and, and have wanted to understand and fully understand his full story. And so we'll do that today. Uh, but before we do that, you guys have heard me the past couple of weeks, uh, particularly on Wednesdays, talk about uh, the Harmony song. Uh, that I had made, and I'm very proud of the song. Uh, I wish I could sing and could have sang on the song, but uh, the song is incredible. It's awesome. It's it's custom, no different than uh, you guys hear me talk a lot about Tamara, out my friend from out in California, and she made the Freedom song for me. That and so we're trying to build a custom music collection here at Fearless that fits this show perfectly, and so probably. A year ago, six, ten months ago, I, I met uh, a woman, Allie Taylor, who's going to be here with me today, and talk with her. I said, I need a song about harmony because that's a big part of what we're doing here at, at Fearless is we want to promote racial harmony and just harmony in general among Americans. And so uh, talk with Allie about a concept of a harmony song and, and she took it from there and then added some spices of a, a singer here, I think that does a little country singer named Tay Lewis, incredible. Uh, but I'm gonna play the song first and then we're gonna talk to Allie and Tay about the Harmony song. Uh, so sit back and enjoy, I think this is about a two and a half minute, three, three minute song, sit back and enjoy this.
So that's the Harmony song. I, hopefully you've heard it before uh, on Wednesdays. We play it at the end of the show every Wednesday. Allie Taylor, Tay Lewis, both here, guys. Wow. Thank you uh, so much uh, for joining me. And, and Allie basically kind of drove this, came up with the hook. Yes. And so, Allie, walk me through the process of how you, because I, I think the hook was amazing. The first time I ever heard it, mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, she got exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> Yay, I'm happy about that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I approached my friend Andrew Beeson. He's a good friend and co-writer of mine here in Nashville. And I just kind of took all the notes that you told me. You wanted it about harmony. Um, you wanted that to be the title. And just kind of tried to incorporate that into the song and make it come to life. And so from the very beginning, I think you mentioned, who has the song champion? Is that Carrie Bradshaw? Carrie, Carrie Underwood? Carrie Underwood. Yeah. I keep saying Carrie Bradshaw. <laughs> I love talking about sex in the city. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Carrie Underwood. And, and it does kind of give me that same feeling mm -hmm. as her song champion, except it's about harmony. Yeah, well you mentioned wanting it to have an epic feel to it and uh, I tried to just kind of bounce off of that. I was like, I know the perfect song, Champion, Carrie Underwood, we'll try to just make that our own for harmony. All right, and so I also said I wanted some soul. Yes. And you, <laughs> Tay Lewis, and there's an, another young woman on the mm -hmm. song, yeah. Davina. What, what's yeah. Davina's last name? Do we know? Um, oh, no. She just goes by Davina with her artist name, I'm pretty oh, okay. sure. So. That's all I've known her to be is Davina. Yeah. All right, and so how did we find Tay and, and Tay, I, I actually saw a couple of weekends ago, I actually saw Tay perform live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, Tay's all around town performing, <laughs> and so am I. So you, you run into the same people, Nashville's small, especially with artists. Yes. We're just kind of all in the same circles and same groups. So yeah. uh, I heard a lot of, about Tay, and you're writing and you're singing, and yes. just your great personality in person as well. So uh, I, I knew you'd be great. The voice, the personality, and then Davina. I actually went to elementary school with Davina in Florida. Oh wow! <laughs> and I, I kind of put uh, just a little note out saying, "Hey, Nashville artists, I'm looking for a female vocal. Anyone who's interested." And Davina reached out, and I'm like, "You're in Nashville?" Because we went to elementary school in Florida, so it's kind of a full circle moment to have her on the song with me yeah. because I've known her for years now. <laughs> so Tay, when you hear about the song and the pro, did did you instantly like, "Oh, I can do this. This this, this fits me." Oh yeah, as soon as she explained to me what the meaning of the song was supposed to be about. I told her, I said right away, I was like, yes, I'll definitely do that. So um, it was a great experience just being in the studio with them and, and with her and meeting mm -hmm. Butter. Um, <laughs> he's a highlight, just a, a hoot for real. Yeah. Um, but it, it was an amazing experience just to be able to do that and just to understand the meaning of it um, really kind of helped me to reel in my artistry, you know, and help me to understand what I'm supposed to do when it comes to like making sure that the song is the way that you want it, you know, mm -hmm. so. <laughs> and so I'm t the first time I heard it, I was like, hey, I, I thought y'all told me there was a, a black male country singer on here. <laughs> and, and again, I, do, I, I do, oh. you have a uh, <laughs> unique sound. Yeah, it, it's you're kind of like I would call you the Michael Jackson of country. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, and so I was surprised. I was like, oh, but there's black country singers. The only one I know is Charlie Pride. Yeah. Uh, but are you, is country, is that the lane you're in for sure? So I am. I am a country singer songwriter. Um, there is actually a lot of us now <laughs> that, are, that are in the, I, I was kind of shocked when I moved to Nashville because I'm from, I lived in New York for about three and a half years before I moved here. And when I lived in New York, I didn't realize um, that there were so many black country singers that were in, in Nashville that were already doing their thing. Now we have people like Breland, Britney Spencer, uh, Willie, uh, Willie Jones. So we have like so many people that are doing it now who are, you know, heavy, you know, black country artists. And then we have Black Opry who is doing the same thing. So it's, mm -hmm. it's great. It's great to see so many, you know, of 
you know, black country artists. Where, where are you from? Mixing. Are you originally from New York? North. I'm originally from North Carolina. Oh, I was, what? Because I was gonna say, a guy from New York wants to sing country music. <laughs> well, there is some. There is some in New York. You know, it's upstate. It's not, you know, in Brooklyn and all those places like that. You don't find a lot. But it's upstate New York is where you find a lot of the country artists that are really wanting to pursue country. Um, but they don't have the nerve to want to move to Nashville because they're like, I'm good where I'm at. So, <laughs> And so how long have you been here? How's it been going? Um, I've been here since January. So I met her um, through a uh, right with her uh Boy, her her boyfriend Gary. Yeah, uh, I was about to say <laughs> Gary Wayne. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with Gary Wayne, um, and I actually wrote with him, and um, that's how I actually met her. And it was from there we just kind of clicked, and um, yeah. So I've been here since January, and I think that was like what in March. It was like March or April, yeah, I think, something like mm-hmm. that. So, um, and we just kind of clicked from there, and that's how we actually met. Yeah. And and Allie, give me a little bit of your backstory in terms. Of, you're from Florida. You went to grade school in Florida. And yeah. How long have you been here? And you're a country singer as well. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I moved around a lot. So, um, was born in New York, grew up in Florida, um, and that's where a lot of my Venezuelan family members are because my father's from Venezuela. So, uh, grew up there with a lot of my family, and then we moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and so that's like my more recent hometown, Amish country. Um, <laughs> And now I'm here, and I came here for school at Belmont University. So I came here for school and then graduated and... With the plans of being a singer the whole time, or...? Yeah, well, that was kind of my parents. I'm the first woman on both sides to graduate college, so my parents really encouraged me to go. And they said, well, if you're gonna, if you're gonna pursue music, if you wanna go to Nashville, then you should go to college. And I'm like, okay, Belmont. And it was just kind of the perfect combo because I was able to go to class and then drive on mus- to Music Row and work at the labels and really get that, and then to a co-write and really be able to have a good balance of working, but music and, and being creative as well. All right, well, so both of you guys tell people where they can find your music, what's your best music, how easy can they access, because you guys are both young and upper comers. How, how can people uh, get your work and get your pro- content? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm Allie Taylor Music on Instagram, Facebook, um, even TikTok. Yep, I'm on there. <laughs> Gotta and, get that. Gotta yeah. get that. Gotta get that. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, you can find me on, on all what's of that. Your, what's your best song? What's the song you've had the most success with? Or your, or what you think is your best song that you want people to listen to? Yeah, I trust the people's opinions. And right now, uh, my duet, Showed Me Love, with Gary Wayne has almost 600,000 streams, and it's been doing really well. So I would say that's my most popular one right now. Tay? Yeah, so you can find me on Tay Lewis Music on Instagram, uh, T-A-E, not T-A-Y. And then on uh, Facebook, it's the same thing, Tay Lewis Music. And then on TikTok, Tay yeah. Lewis Music. So <laughs> I try to make it as easy as convenient for everybody. Um, I mean, pretty much the most prevalent song that I have out right now um, is I Don't. But the one that everybody has been kind of clicking with a lot is called Love Gone Missing. Um, that hit about 10,000 streams, so that was really good. Love Gone Missing. Yes, sir. Can you sing a little bit of it? Or? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I can. I can. Just give, yeah, give us a taste. Okay. This house ain't home. It's hard to let go of all that I could believe. Give you my best shot to you that I'm not the man that I used to be. Cause I love runs deeper than the way I'm feeling. My heart can't take another all this beating. Oh, girl, yeah, we got to stop tripping. Cause you know that our love's gone missing. Yay. Woo. Oh, man. That's, <laughs> see, I, I got to be honest. Before I came to Nashville, I knew nothing about uh, country music. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still only know like a tiny, tiny bit. But I have developed a taste for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, Allie through this harmony song, but it, Allie, uh, you know, you gonna let Tay do the only singing here? You wanna give us a taste of <laughs> Come on, Show Allie, Me God. the Love or something? <laughs> uh, sure. Let's see, put me on the spot. <laughs> yeah, there's a, I guess I can sing some of Showed Me Love. Um, Empty Friday nights and wasted weekends. 
Finding myself lonely in the crowd Every bad goodbye just left me feeling Like there might not be a good man in this town Heaven only knows just where I'd be If your love never came to set me free You show me light, fix my heart, and show me what it means to live my life. Wow. <laughs> now and, yeah. <laughs> wow. It's a little amazing, bit. right? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I was going to say you should sing the one I you wrote with you. We're going to party, y'all. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah we, can, we can sing that one, too. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> thank you, guys. I got to take care of a little business before Zuby gets here. Yeah, okay. you got to stop us or we'll do a whole concert right. over here. Right. Okay. <laughs> gonna, you know what? I'm going to be honest with you. Come back anytime. Okay. Yeah, Any love that. Your schedule works. And we can do this again. Uh, maybe we can get Davina here as well. Yes, that'd be uh, great. She's a school teacher, so. Yeah, we could certainly yeah. get Butter here. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he had a little schedule problem. But anyway, thank you guys so much. Let me take care of some business. Thank you. Uh, thank you. With Father's Day coming up and all the summer events and holidays on the horizon, this is the perfect time to try a box of Good Ranchers. If you're looking to surprise your father, grandfather, father-in-law, husband, this is a no-brainer. Good Ranchers is the place to get American beef, chicken, and seafood this summer. They sell 100% American meat and ship it right to your door. And right now, they're giving away two free 18-ounce prime center-cut ribeyes to every person that uses my code FEARLESS. That's over two pounds of prime ribeye steaks just added to your order at no cost. With Father's Day almost here and the summer stretching out right before us, what's not to love? This is not the time to wait. Claim your ribeyes today before they run out. This is a limited stock item. First come, first up. First, first come, first serve. And you want to be first with Good Ranchers. They deliver the best of American farms and ranchers to your door. Make sure you take the time today right now and go to GoodRanchers.com fearless or use my code fearless at checkout to get your two free 18 ounce ribeyes. Start the summer off right with Good Ranchers, American meat delivered. You guys know I love Good Ranchers. You know I love them because they love us. They love our point of view. They love the values. They love America. Be a good soldier. Eat Good Ranchers. Zuby X. All right, welcome back. Welcome back to a special uh, musical edition of Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Uh, we just had on uh, Allie Taylor and Tay Lewis, who put together the great harmony song for us. And as I told you at the top of the show, uh, now our, star, our featured guest is here, Zuby Udezu. Did I get that last name right? Udezue, close. Udezue. Udezue. Yeah. I just know him as Zuby Music. I've been following his Twitter feed for a couple of years. It seems like he's an independent rapper from the UK, author of a new book, Candy Calamity, host of a podcast. I don't know if you know this, Zuby, but I used to host a podcast called Real Talk oh, yeah. uh, probably 10 years ago. And Zuby's podcast is called Real Talk with Zuby. He's a public speaker, entrepreneur, uh, born in England but raised in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, that's right. You got an interesting background, and that's kind of what I want to get into. I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm fascinated by Zuby, <laughs> and now I want to learn why and what the backstory is. And so just walk us, through, you know, born in England, grew up in Saudi Arabia, lived a bunch of places. Walk us a little bit through your background growing up. Yeah, sure thing. So I was born, as you said, in England. My parents are originally from Nigeria. That's my family background, uh, Igbo ethnicity to be precise. When I was a baby, I don't remember this of course, we moved to Saudi Arabia. My dad's a medical doctor. He got a job opportunity to work out over there in the Middle East and we all went out there, seven of us, uh, my parents, myself and my four older siblings and all my earliest memories are in Saudi Arabia. When I was there, I went to an international school. So I was actually in the American school system from kindergarten all the way up until fifth grade. So for anyone who's wondering about my accent and why I don't sound like a typical Englishman, it's because of that. So I've- I hear that. a little bit of it. You'll hear a little bit yeah. of it. Yeah, okay. for sure. I don't sound like 100% American, gotcha. but I don't sound British either. So it, it confuses people in both countries and all over the world. Um, after fifth grade, I actually went to boarding school when I was 11 years old. 
So I went to boarding school back in the UK from the age of 11. So from 11 to 17, I was in boarding school from, I guess, what would be sixth grade onward. And then I did really well in school. I got top grades and everything, got into Oxford University, studied computer science there for three years. While I was in university, that's actually when I started making music and released my first album, when I was in my second year of university. And then after that, I graduated. Uh, graduated when I was 20, took one year out, and did my music full-time for a year. And then I actually had a corporate job offer, and I put, put it off for one year to work on my music. But then after that year, I moved to London, worked in the corporate world as a management consultant for three years for a big company. And then in November 2011, I took the big leap and became a full-time musician. So mm. I've now been self-employed for over 10 years, doing all of my music to date. I've now put out six albums and three EPs in total, um, performed all over the place, and added a lot of additional strings to the bow since then, especially since 2019. That's when I started my podcast. It's when I released my first fitness book, Strong Advice. And it's also when things just started to blow up for me and a lot of people in the USA started to discover me. Up until that point, my audience was primarily in the UK and specifically for my music. And now people know me primarily in the US, but honestly, around the world and for a lot of different things. Yeah, I was gonna ask that, because let's say you got a million Twitter followers. Uh, what percentage of them do you think are American versus the UK? And, and, and then, work, because if you don't follow Zuby on social media and you don't fully understand, hey, Whitlock's got a rapper on or whatever, but Zuby is far more than just a rapper. Uh, you're a public intellectual, mm. and you've been, uh, I think you've been kicked off of, or suspended for Twitter <laughs> for, uh, you know, saying the transgender crowd's not a big fan of yours. Is that, I said, uh, I, I got temporarily suspended for saying, okay, dude, in reply to somebody. That's what I said. The tweet just said, okay, dude. Oh, you, is that you misgendered somebody? Is that what they're they, they were never specific. Someone was boasting about the fact that they sleep with more women than me, and I just said, okay, dude. And then a week later, um, I got an email from Twitter saying that I'd been, my account had been locked for hateful conduct. And I was like, wait, what, what's going on here? Initially, I thought it was like a, like a phishing, like a spam message or something. And then I tried to go on Twitter, and yeah, I'm, I'm locked out of my account, and the offending tweet is literally, okay, dude. And so I, I thought it was some type of mistake. I appealed to Twitter, and then it got a human review, and they confirmed the following day that I violated their hateful conduct policy. So of the 100,000 plus tweets I've put out there, the one that went past the line was me saying, okay, dude. And so did you say, okay, dude, before or after uh, you announced you identified as a female <laughs> and broke some weightlifting records? Yeah. Uh, and that, that stuff didn't get you in trouble? Uh, uh, no, that, that, no, that didn't get, get me in any trouble at all. That was February 2019. So that was the flashpoint. So I've been on Twitter since 2009, and it took me 10 years. At the beginning of 2019, I had about 17, 18,000 followers. And that viral deadlift tweet blew up. That's how millions of people across the world discovered me from that, from the Joe Rogan to Tucker Carlson to Piers Morgan, Ben Shapiro, like people all over the map in all these different arenas that video was seen by millions and millions of people. So that was the flashpoint where, that was like a tipping point where I came onto a lot of people's radars and then through that, people discovered my music and my podcast and my writing and my general thoughts and commentary. And ever since then, it's just been growing and growing and growing. So if you wanna grow your social media account, identify <laughs> as a woman. Yeah, female that privilege. Yeah, that, that will do it for you. Wow, and so you said in 2019 you had 17, 18,000 followers, yeah. and now how many do you have? On Twitter, 820,000. Yeah. Across the board, I think about 1.3 million. And so I'm sure that's benefited and fueled your rap career mm -hmm. and business and, and helped you get financially sound and successful. Yeah, definitely. And um, it's been a long grind. As I said, I put, my, I put out my first album in 2006. 
So I think a lot of people don't realize how long I've been grinding on everything I do for. There's so many people, probably 99% of people who know me discovered me in the last three years, which is, which is fine. Um, but I think there's a lot of those people who, who missed out on the decade plus of real hustle that came before all of that. So some people might see it and go, oh, you know, he just uh, put out one tweet and things blew up. And it's like, no, no, no. There's a there's a lot of there's a lot of grind that came before that, and a lot of grind that's come after it as well. I mean, that that was February 2019, so that could have been a flash in the pan and then faded out and disappeared, as many things do. Lots of things go viral on the internet, but I've been able to maintain and sustain that and really continue to grow my audience and the amount of people I'm reaching through all the different channels of what I do, and honestly. Life is really beautiful right now. Things are at a really exciting stage. I've sort of tipped into a whole new phase of my career and my life. And there's no one who does what I do in the combination that I do it, right? I mean, there are, there are rappers, there are authors, there are podcasters, there are fitness people, there are socio-political commentators and so on. But what I'm doing and what I'm building in combination is totally unique. So that's interesting and there's some trepidation around that because sometimes I'm like, man, like I don't even I don't even know exactly what I'm doing or like where this all goes in the future. Where will things be five years from now, a decade from now? It's kind of hard to predict. You know, it's gonna be a lot bigger. But I'm grateful to have opportunities like this. I mean the fact that I'm even in the USA and there are so many people here showing love and wanting to talk to me and work with me on different projects, even just knowing who I am. I mean, I'm an, I'm an independent rapper from the UK. I'm not someone who had like millions of pounds or dollars pumped into their marketing budget or who was plastered all over TV or anything like that. It's been really, really organic. I used to sell my CDs on the street. That's how it started. I mean, for I did that for over a decade. That used to be the main source of my revenue. And then I started doing pop-up shops in different shopping malls in the UK where I'd sell my CDs and sell my merchandise. So the fact that I'm even able to travel around the USA and have all these cool opportunities and build projects and connect with great people in different arenas, for me, that's, that's just a huge blessing. And I don't and take so it for granted. Help, and I know artists hate to compare themselves or be compared to some other artists, but just help I, an average American rap music fan, like. Is there some American rapper that you'd say, ah, maybe I'm in that lane just mm. to help people understand your musical career? Sure, in terms of my, my style of music, I found that, I mean, I could, I could certainly say which, if people listen to certain artists, then there's a good chance they'll like my music. I found that a lot of people who like artists, uh, and there's quite a broad range actually, Tech 9 Kanye West, um, Nas, stuff like Gangstar, um, Jay-Z to some extent. I'd say people who are fans of lyrics. some of those artists. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a lyrics guy. I'm about the words, I'm about wordplay. When you say Tech Nine, you're talking to, that's, I know Tech Nine forward and backwards. Yeah. Uh, the Alpha and the Omega. And, yeah. <laughs> I know, and so that to me, when you say Tech Nine is one of the first names out of your mouth, I, incredible lyrics, mm -hmm. and it's like when you tech the music's good and may make you want to dance, but you got you want to lock in. This guy's about to tell you a story. Yeah, he's about to say something to make you think, and I, I that's it, what's your most uh, popular song? Probably "Okay, Dude." <laughs> oh, you so ended after, up doing I made, a, I made a song called OK Dude. And um, I'd say recently over the past few years, that's, that's my most popular one. And so obviously it's about what happened to you, but can you give me a little it, taste? It, in, inspired by it more than directly about it. It's funny because I actually, Joe Rogan actually does the intro on it because he talked about the whole OK Dude situation and me getting deplatformed from Twitter on his podcast. So I took the clip from that and actually used it for the intro of the song. Um, so the track is, is related to that. It's more inspired by it than telling the story of it. But um, it's really, honestly, it was getting a lot of stuff off my chest because I put out an album in 2019 and then I had this whole whirlwind of 
craziness and travel and interviews and suddenly coming on a lot of people's radar. Um, and it's also when I started getting a lot of backlash and flack for some of the things that I was saying because suddenly I was kind of elevated to this position where you're more visible. So the more visible you are, the more people are going to attack you on social media. So I wanted to just address all of that. So the song goes into a lot of different things and was kind of just like airing out and venting some of the some of the things that people had been saying. So yeah, that's one of my most popular songs. And then, so I, I listen, your dad's a doctor. That's right. Uh, I would imagine your mom's pretty smart too. Very. You're very smart, went to Oxford. It's, what do you think about a lot of rap, American rap, mm -hmm. is pretty stupid. And you're really smart. Yeah. What, what do you think about what has happened to rap? Because I, you're not my, I'm 55. Mm. I was at rap at the very beginning. And I love rap the most when it was KRS-One and Public Enemy mm. and even an X-Clan and just that whole era where there was a consciousness and it felt like rap was gonna really educate and elevate mm. uh, black culture, and then it went another direction. And I'm just outsider who obviously probably inspired by American rappers. Yeah. What do you think of where rap music has gone? It, it's a great question. I'll be honest, I think when it comes to this particular topic, I do think that everybody tends to have a little bit of a bias on it based on their, based on their age and what they kind of grew up with. Because there has, nonsense rap has always existed. Unlyrical rap that's just about partying or women or flexing or jewelry and car, like it, that's always existed. Rap's Delight is a silly song. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah. It's, it's been there. Yeah. So, and there is plenty of deep, conscious, strong storytelling, great lyrics. Now? There is now. There is, right? There's also the mumble rap and right. the, there's, there's also nonsense and party music. And Does any of it get played on radio or anywhere? In the, in the States, I don't really know, to be honest. Yeah. I don't really know um, how much of it gets played on the radio here. I think that one of the problems with hip hop is that the truth is, I think, and people could have a whole debate about why this is, but a lot of the degenerate stuff is pushed to the forefront in the mainstream. So I think a lot of people, especially if they're not really into, into hip hop, what they hear and what, what they judge it on is off a few songs and artists that they're hearing on the radio or in the club and so on, right? Because mm -hmm. that's, what's, that's what's popping, right? Like that's what is getting more attention. At the same time, you have got artists like Kendrick Lamar, J. Cole, even Drake to some degree, Logic, and so on, who are selling crazy records, selling out huge shows. So there are artists who are saying stuff and aren't just rapping nonsense, who are doing extraordinarily well, even in that mainstream lane. I, in fact, they're doing better than the mumble rappers. So I think, there's a, I think there's a little bit of bias at play when people discuss this. But I also think that when it comes to any genre of music, and hip hop for sure, you've always got the range. One thing that I tend to take issue with, certainly when it comes to mainstream and what's pushed out there on the big channels, is one of balance, right? I think if all you're putting out there is the, you know, the, the, the gangsta stuff and the stuff promoting drugs and promoting uh, having sex with everybody and you know, how much money you've got and all that, and it's completely lopsided and that's all you know, someone driving in the car listening to the radio, if that's all they're getting, then I think that's a problem. So I think, I think that balance has certainly shifted over time. I think the balance used to be better in that you could turn on the radio and you'd hear more lyrical rap and stuff with a better message and so on. Um, but I think now they've kind of gone more towards that sort of fast food, fast food lane music way. Um, honestly, the same thing has happened with, with food as well. You know, there's still plenty of great food out there but the stuff that is pushed and promoted and you're hearing the ads for or whatever, it's typically not gonna be the best stuff for you. Not, that's another area I'm an expert on, uh, rap and food. <laughs> two areas I know well and have had a problem with both of them. L let me ask you uh, a, probably a little bit of a difficult question, but 
one of the things that like drives me crazy about rap now is it's over reliance on the N word. Mm. I can go back and listen to the rap from the 90s, 2000s, where it might get said occasionally. Uh, but now it's almost, I wonder like, are rappers paid by the N word? Is there some kind of incentive uh, for relying on, on, on the N word? And that's what drives, because I can't listen to it. Mm. I can't roll my windows down and listen to it because it's embarrassing. I'm yeah. like, I'm a grown man and somebody, <laughs> bitch, hoe, N word, yeah. ever. And, but I'm just, is there, and this is the last question I'm gonna ask you along these lines. No, no, it's okay. Is there some sort of, I've literally asked, like, is there some sort of, do they sit you in a room and say, hey guys, <laughs> you only said the N word 10 times on this song and our quota is 15. <laughs> it must be 15, Does that, is that what's going on? Man, I mean, I've used that word in precisely zero of my songs in my entire career, so I can't speak on everybody else but I'm also totally independent, so I don't know what goes on behind those closed doors. The truth is as well, and this, this is a, uh, I think a lot of times people ask why rappers rap about certain things or use certain words and so on. And I honestly think a much more interesting question is why do so many people listen to it and buy it? Because it's a supply and demand thing to some degree, right? I think you know, rather than asking, okay, why do rappers rap about these subjects? It's like, well, why are millions of people, buy, why are people buying it and streaming it in droves and that's what they want to listen to? And I, mean, I think that's, a, that's kind of a deeper and more uncomfortable question. And I think that human beings, I mean, you could say the same with other forms of entertainment, video games, movies, right? People like violence and sex and stories about drugs and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I think the biggest issue is when that line between entertainment and reality gets gets blurred. And that happens quite a lot, especially within the world of hip hop. But I, I think it comes to, you know, just economic supply and demand, because as long as it keeps on selling and people keep playing it, why would a rapper be incentivized to change? And I think that's a shame. But that that's not my view, obviously. I mean, I when it comes to my own music and everything that comes out of my mouth, I represent me and I put out the message that I want to put out, but just looking at it as to why I think that's the case, I think, I, I think that's a part of it. And I don't think those artists' morals or principles or so on supersedes the, you know, the desire to just make money and put out what they know to well, be popular. I, I think we've built a culture yeah. that uh, degrades itself. No question, yeah. but has also, in, in some way, and this leads us down a, a, another path, but it's like black people, our identities are caught up in being a victim. Mm -hmm. That's the highest level of blackness, being a victim. And uh, other than being a victim, the other way to show that, hey, I'm really black and I'm leaning into my black identity is, again, I don't know, you can't relate to it because you didn't grow up here in America. Mm -hmm. But the thing you can do, particularly if you've had some success and maybe you came from the hood, but if I can litter my conversation with the N-word, mm -hmm. I feel authentically black and yeah. I haven't sold out. And so that's, they've tapped into, into that. And so I'm wondering, as a uh, dark-skinned person yeah. from another country, mm -hmm. what do you think about the victimhood culture that we have going on here in America? I don't like it. Um, I, it's something I speak out against a lot. And it's, um, it, it, man, this is, this, this is so deep. Um, it's, it's a big problem. I mean, I have a theory that this is the you know, if people want to talk about institutional and systemic racism persisting in the modern era, like this is this is it. This is it. It's it's telling black people, black Americans in particular, that they are somehow lesser than, and it's not being told that explicitly. But okay, we're talking about music. If an artist of any other race or ethnicity made a song explicitly 
talking about killing people of their own race or ethnicity. If a Chinese rapper or a Jewish, if a Jewish rapper made a song about killing Jewish people or a white rapper made He'd a song about killing white people, short. people would be like, what's wrong with this person? He's insane. But people have become so numb. About people it, have become so numb over the decades about black people rapping about killing other black people that this question is not even asked. It's just, it's just assumed by everyone. Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's just normal. There's, there's, no, there's no shock value. And at the same time, people are there, you know, saying, you know, black lives matter or, you know, we need to treat each other better or other people need to treat us better and so on. And it's like, man, so much of this problem is internal. And when you hold that mirror up, I mean, as an outsider, it's even worse. But if that mirror is held up, it makes people so uncomfortable and they, they, they lash out. And it's, it's, such a huge, it's such a huge shame because you know that if that mentality is rejected, and people don't see themselves as lesser than and don't assume that everyone else around them is trying to put the boot down on them and hold them down and so on, then they can go on and achieve incredible greatness. I mean, in the United States of America, and, and maybe one issue is that, sadly, Americans don't travel internationally very much. And so the, the worldview is so, so insular and so focused on the US past and present that people lack both perspective and gratitude. This doesn't just apply to black Americans, it applies to, I think, Americans in general, but people don't realize just, like if you are in the USA and you're an American in, in 2022, regardless of your, your skin color, gender, sexuality, whatever, like the amount of opportunity in this country, like I can guarantee you no one is oppressing you more than you're oppressing yourself. Guaranteed. People, people, don't, care enough, people don't care to oppress you. Right. Like no one is going to be like, oh, this guy's black. We know we're going to we're going to it's not it's not 1920. Right. It's 2022. So when people are still grasping onto this so desperately and making it their whole identity, it's like, man, that's what's holding that person back. That is the problem. And it makes me sad to see this on a, on a daily basis. I see it on social media all the time. I'm hearing it and what people are saying and so on. And it's just like, man, when are. And unfortunately, it's, it, there's an industry around it as well, which makes it even worse. There's this whole grievance industrial complex where they want to lock people into this way of thinking. Even, even, even if they become incredibly successful, it's like you're, you're still supposed to have this type of mentality. And ultimately, it's, it's destructive. Ultimately, it's destructive. And um, I know that there are you know, some black Americans out there who don't like me speaking on this as like a, a British person, you know, people don't want to hear criticism from a, an outsider or something like that. But the only reason that criticism even exists is because I want to see people do well. I don't like to see people oppressing themselves and holding themselves down. I like to see people achieve potential and achieve greatness. So any type of criticism is more like holding up a mirror going, oh, look, like maybe this th you can sort out this thing yourself. It can't be sorted out externally. Not everything can be fixed in externally if it's an internal problem. And yes, history can be acknowledged and should be, and people should know history and why certain things are the way they are and so on. But it's like you can't drive a car with your head stuck backwards, right? You have to look, you have to look forward. You can check the side mirrors and check behind you occasionally to you know, orient yourself. But you've, you've, you've got to focus on forward because you, you can't change history, not on a nation level not on an individual level, not on a group level. History is history. There's so many things in history I wish, I wish we could press a button and go back and change and make it so that something never happened. But in the here and now, all you can do is make choices and do things that are gonna move you forward. So that's a core part of my message. Um, I think that particularly resonates with certain people, but honestly, people across the board, that's really one of my core messages. And, I don't like to see black Americans or black people in general, anyone in general, being you know, emotionally manipulated or being used as a political football, which you see all the time, um, and you know, just having their feelings used against them, essentially. And, so yeah. you have lived and traveled a lot of places. Yeah. Uh, and so do I hear you saying that for your skin color, there's more opportunity here than the other places you have lived and traveled? Yes, including my country of the UK. The US, 
people don't understand, people don't get how much the, the size and scale and scope and wealth of this nation and the way things are laid out is unique globally. There are plenty of developed countries, right? Take my country, the UK. I mean, the whole UK, which is four countries, Northern Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales, the whole UK is smaller than Texas, right? Has a bigger population, but geographically it's smaller. You've got places like Australia, 20 million people. Canada, 30 million people. The USA, 340 million people. You've got what, four different time zones, gigantic place, one of the wealthiest countries in the world in terms of equality and, and fairness under the law. No one is being, again, history was different, but right now, laws are equal. There's no one, there's nothing on the books that's gonna stop you, regardless of your, your class, whether you're rich, you're poor, you're black, you're white, you're straight, you're gay, you're a man, you're a woman. Like if you can't make something out of it here, then you know that's that's honestly on you. It's not on you where you start, but where you finish, that that's on you. And there's countless stories. Hundreds of millions of people have started out in not a great place, and then they've strived and they've made good decisions and they've gone on to live fantastic lives. So it's not like there's there's a lack of examples or something like well, that. What would you say to the people that hear that and go? <laughs> This guy's dad was a doctor. He sure. went to private school. I did. I own all uh, that. I own all that. But he doesn't know but, what he's talking but, but about. But isn't isn't that isn't that funny that we're living in a time where being privileged is considered a bad thing? If you're not, if you don't come from privilege, you should try to strive to make sure your children do, right? And even when people talk about privilege, they talk about this such a narrow, such a narrow lens, right? My point is that it's on you. Is life harder or easier for some people in different ways, in all shapes and Everyone has their different, different struggles, different advantages, different pros, different cons. But as I said, if you are, <laughs> honestly, if, if you live in the West in general, and you have a Western passport um, or citizenship, and you are able-bodied, and you don't have some gigantic, like crazy health issues or something, you, you are, I mean, you want to talk about privilege, you're already in the 1% of humanity that's ever walked, walked the face of this earth. You're already better off than almost everybody who's ever existed, even if you are not in perfect circumstances, even if you don't come from the best family or you don't grow up in the best neighborhood. What you have here is you have the capacity to, to, to move up. Why do so many people want to move to countries like the USA? It's because there's no ceiling here. Right, so there's plenty of places where you could be born. You know, you could be born in uh, a village in Ethiopia, and you're smart, you're hardworking, you've got good character, good principles. But wh where you are, the ceiling is just very low. No, even if you work really, really hard, like you're you're just capped. Unless you go and venture off to somewhere else, a bigger city, a different country, somewhere else where you can really, really elevate. You're, you're always going to be capped. And that's why so many people want to come here. That's why people want to come here from South America, from Central America, from Europe, from all over. And I'm saying this again as someone who's from England. Like England is a great country in its own regard. But I would say in terms of opportunity and scale, it doesn't even compare and to so the U.S. You and I are come from opposite spectrums. My, my dad didn't graduate high school. My mother was a factory worker. Uh, you know, in 1984, my senior year of high school, me and my father lived in a one-bedroom, 400-square-foot apartment in mm -hmm. the hood. And I was born with some privilege. One, I had two parents that were committed. Even mm -hmm. My parents divorced, but both committed to me. And then two, I was blessed with enough athleticism to mm -hmm. get a college football scholarship. Mm. And that's all I needed. Yep. Th that, that, Parents, that scholarship and my Christian faith mm -hmm. launched me and allowed me to go places where no one in my family has ever gone. Yeah. And being born on, on this patch yes. of land. Yeah, and right. here in America, yeah. that's a privilege yeah. that we all just take for granted. And so how would the message that you push out, how much flack do you <laughs> get back for doing that? I get plenty, and it's, you know, I mostly get love, first of all. I think it's, I think it's important to realize it's like 90-10 or 95-5, right? Most people who know me really like what I do and understand the intention of the message that I put out there. 
But I think the reason why some people don't like it is the same reason why some people get mad when um, someone promotes healthy living and exercise and diet, any, anything that puts personal responsibility on people and holds up a mirror which could make them go, mm, maybe I have some internal, may, may, maybe I'm part of the issue. Yeah. People don't like that. A lot of people don't like that. It's always, it's, un, it's uncomfortable for almost everybody, but some people will own that and be like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, that's right, like, I can do something about that. And that's empowering. Right, like we all fall short in various ways, but knowing that, hey, I can I can do something about this. I'm broke now, but I can take steps that will, you know, put me on a path to prosperity. Or you know what, I'm not I'm not in the best shape right now, but I can alter my diet and my lifestyle habits, and I can exercise and I can change that. Right. So actually, it's it's a very empowering message, but I think I think why it can trigger people is because it takes away the alibi. People like to have an alibi. People like to have something external that is the reason that they can use for any, any type of failure, right? And we all do this to some degree, right? If, um, if you're booked for something and you, you get there late, you know, people say, oh, you know, it was traffic or it was this. Truth is, you, you left too late, right? You should, you should have left earlier, and that's on you. But our natural thing, it's literally the oldest story in the Bible, right? What happened when... You know, and when Adam ate the fruit, and he said, oh, it was that woman, she told me, she told me to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a very natural human thing. So I think that there are a lot of people who like the idea of uh, systemic or institutional or structural racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia and all these types of bigotry and this notion that there's just some entity out there, whether it's the patriarchy or it's white supremacy or it's whatever, there's some invisible force out there that's stopping them from succeeding because if you pull that away from them, then they have to realize, oh, actually, it's, it's on me. And I think it's also what leads to that type of hater mentality when someone sees someone else who is successful and instead of being inspired by it, they, they get triggered and they get angry and they feel jealous because they see, oh, well, they'd like to think that, oh, well, everyone who's like me can't do this thing. But then, I mean, you just told your story, so you're a shining example that, oh, look, someone can come from this place and have this background and be very successful. So if I'm not successful, what does that say about me and my decisions and my choices? So I think that's at a deep level, at a deeper level. I think that's why some people have that type of reaction to it and will try to say that, uh, you know, you're... Well, you, it's easy. it was easy for you, or you had this, or you were lucky, or whatever. And some of those things can be true, right? I don't get defensive if someone says, oh, well, you know, you're, you're lucky. You, uh, you know, you, your dad's a doctor. You're lucky. I'm like, yeah, you're, you're correct. I, I am lucky. My children will be lucky, too, because I will be, I will be their father. So they're going to have some type of luck or advantage. But shouldn't we all strive for that to ideally be the case? Like, we should be trying to make... Let's try to make more people lucky. Let's create an environment individually and collectively where more people can be of privilege. So I think I, I read or heard somewhere, did you have an incident with the police where they misidentified mm-hmm. you and, and, and tell that story and, and sure. how come you're not mad as hell about it? Yeah, sure, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was back in 2009. So I'd actually been out, uh, I'd, after I'd finished university and I was taking a year out doing my music full time, I'd actually been out in a city just promoting and selling my CDs on the street, passing out flyers and stuff like that. And I got on a train, um, I went back to my, to my hometown and I came out at the train station. And this is in the UK? This is in the UK. So you have to remember in the UK, the normal police aren't armed, right? So, but they have firearm units. So if there is a high threat, uh, someone with a gun, terrorist threat, something like that, they'll deploy, you know, the, the big boy police, the, you know, the armed police. So there were like two or three armed police units at the train station. And I, I, I step out of the train and I hear shouting, get down, stand back. Well, um, you know, I look up and I'm like, whoa, what's, what's going on? And then one of them force, you know, forcibly pushes me backwards and I look up and I've got one, two, three, four, five guns just trained on me, right? And they're yelling, get down on the floor, get down. And so I just, it felt very surreal, but you know, I, I lay down on the floor as instructed, put my hands up, they put, put cuffs on me, told me I'm under arrest for a section one firearms offense, and I have, I have no idea at this time, like what, no idea what's going on, it doesn't even feel real. And then you know, they march me off and take me to this room and they're interrogating me and asking me all these questions. 
um, you know, about uh, threatening someone with a firearm and this and that in, in a city I hadn't even been to, right? Um, I'd been in a city called Southampton. They were saying this happened in Basingstoke. I was like, I haven't, I haven't been to Basingstoke today. So very quickly, I didn't know what was going on, but very quickly I realized, okay, this is, this is mistaken identity. So whilst I was shaken up and very confused, I was also relatively calm because I knew I hadn't done anything. So I don't know who they thought I was, exactly what they thought I'd done, but I was like, well, my conscience is clear. I haven't done anything, so this will be resolved, right? I don't know, I don't know how long it'll take, but it'll be resolved. Anyway, you know, they took me over. I'm there like in cuffs being escort. People must have thought I was some, you know, Pablo Escobar, big deal drug dealer or something. Um, there were a lot of people at the station, so everyone was, you know, like there was a lot of commotion. Um, and then you know, I was put in the cop car. I was riding in the cop car with these, they took me to the station. I was in the station for about 10 minutes, and then um, someone came out looking very sheepish and was like, I, I'm so, so sorry. We, we got the wrong person. Unlocked, unlocked the cuffs, you know, checked check that I was okay, offered to drive me back home, and so on. Um, and that was that. And then there was a whole media storm after it, which, which was crazy. That was just as crazy as the incident because it was on the front cover of several newspapers the following day that there had been this mistaken identity. Yeah. That, that was the story that was on the paper. Yeah, but also, again, something like this is, is pretty rare, especially in the UK, actually. It's pretty yeah. rare. So there was all this speculation about what it was. Did they think I was a terrorist or this? Or was it a racial incident or so on? You know, everyone had their assumptions and biases and narratives. Um, and then every, all these different platforms wanted to, wanted to interview me and talk about it. And, and, and interestingly, you know, like our, pr our previous conversation is, you, you could tell some of them wanted me to play the, the, the race angle or to, to be, let me, be, be, more, be more angry and more accusatory than honestly I actually was. I was upset, obviously, right? And I was annoyed, but I also didn't want to jump to conclusions myself because it was decided very quickly that, okay, this is going to go to the Independent Police Commission, and they're gonna do a whole investigation, find out what, what went wrong that led to this incident. So I was like, all right, let me, let me wait for, let me wait and see what actually happened. Um, and that, that went on for several months. But yeah, that was that, that, was that whole incident. From and start um, to finish, from mm -hmm. like the moment they pushed you down yeah. to the moment they unlocked the handcuffs and said, hey, we screwed up, mm. how long was that? I'd say about an hour. About an hour. That's a bad experience. Yeah, that, it wasn't pleasant. Yeah, I, I, I had something not, but similar, but not that bad. Where they didn't take me off there and put me in cuffs, but certainly accused me for an hour on the side of the mm -hmm. highway. And I could, you get, you're shaken up and yeah. all that. But what I've tried to tell people is like, because I'm a speeder, I talk about this on the show. <laughs> I've been pulled over a lot yeah. because I like to drive fast <laughs> and. Let's, so I've, let's say I've been pulled over 30, 40 times. Mm. I've had one bad experience with the police. Yeah. And so I can't generalize about all police and policing mm. if I've had one bad experience out of 40. Yeah. Uh, it seems like I generalize the other way because I've, I've had more experiences where I kill the cop with kindness and get out of a speeding ticket. Mm -hmm that I've had bad experiences. Yeah, well I think the, the truth about humanity, and this, this goes across everything, is that we are generally far more sensitive to, to negative, negative experiences and negative emotions than the positive ones. And there's this, there's this bias where if something bad happens once, then we're, people have a tendency to, to cast that across, whether it's an entire demographic or just shape their entire worldview or anything like that, and they'll just ignore the positive or the neutral stuff, right? I mean, if, if um, let's say for example, I mean, I don't know how many, how many police interactions there are with Americans every year. I would assume it is hundreds of millions of police interactions every year. Now, 99.9% .9 of those are not gonna make the news, right? There's nothing interesting, it's mundane, 
everything goes as it's supposed to, whoever's in the right, whoever's in the wrong, whatever, it's not interesting. But when something does go wrong, that blows up nationally, internationally, and so on, and people are like, ah, oh, this is everyday life in America. This is it, this is America, this is what, and it's like, well, how is the 0.1% case now representative of the daily thing, right? So I understand why people feel that way, but I it's, I, I, think it's, I think it's just a, cogn- <laughs> I think it's one of those cognitive biases. I just think it's a cognitive bias that it, it stands out. It, I think it's, well, the, 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 I, I've seen so many people mm. take so much pride in telling their story yeah. about their exaggerated bad experience with police. Sure. And it's a way of saying, <laughs> see how black I am? Mm. I had a bad experience with the cops. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, that, so again, living in the UK, that's all you see because that's all you hear in the media, right? Because no, like I said, normal interactions don't make the news and they don't go viral. So you could be sitting in the UK or any other country and every time you hear about, you know, you hear about the USA, it's, it's, a, it's a shooting, it's a, it's a cop killing someone, it's some uh, racist incident happening in a park or in a school or something. So someone can sit there, especially someone who's never been to the US before, Right? And this runs both ways. I know Americans who think that people in the UK are all running around with knives, stabbing each other, and that London is super dangerous because there's people you know, who, are, who are getting stabbed and there's, uh, there's grooming gangs and so on and so forth. And I'm like, that, I mean, d- d- does, does that exist? Yes, just like shootings do exist in the USA. But you know, there's people who will not travel to the USA because they're afraid of getting shot. Right? Yeah. Now, could you get, like, like, do shootings happen in the US? Yes, but should you not ever in your life travel to the country because you're, it's like being afraid to go outside because you could get hit by lightning. It's like, it's possible, but if we're talking probabilities, if you're just minding your business and you're not involved in some gang or criminal activity or something, the chance of you getting shot or stabbed in the UK or in the US is very, very, when very low. you come low. down on the Second Amendment here? I support it. I support it, um, which is quite rare for a Brit, but yeah, I definitely support it. And, and so clearly you understand, like, it's central yes. to freedom. Yes. That you can't, you take the guns away from people, there's yeah. a lot less freedom. I actually think it's central to global freedom. I'd go that far. I think the USA's Second Amendment is not important just to Americans. I think it's important globally because I think this country for all its pros and cons, I think this is truly the bastion of freedom on a global level. So I think even if you look at the past two and a half years, right, we, people, people balk at the idea of a government becoming tyrannical, but look at the past two and a half years and look at what happened in so many European countries, in Australia and Canada, like under whatever guise, you know, the USA can only be pushed to a certain level when it comes to authoritarianism. Yeah, they can't and, come knocking on your door and force the vaccine on you because you may have a gun. Yes, <laughs> there, there, there's a level to it. And so I think the USA and its Second Amendment actually stands against that type of threat on a, on a global scale. And it's something I've thought about a lot. And again, being so, someone who's not from the country but spends a lot of time here and knows a lot of people across the political aisle, I can totally understand both sides. I do understand the people who are just like, just ban the guns, just get rid of the guns, the guns are the problem. I get that, that's the typical British mentality. That's actually how most people in the world, certainly in the Western world, think. So I do understand that perspective. I don't just think it's like stupid and dismiss it, Um, but fundamentally, most of the time, the people saying that don't understand what the Second Amendment is or why it exists. They don't understand what the existing gun situation even is. There's people who think you can just, you know, walk into Walmart and buy a bazooka if you're seven years old without any background check. So people, you know, people will talk about, well, you shouldn't just, you shouldn't be able to buy machine guns in Walmart. And I'm like, you can't buy machine guns in Walmart, right? But, but they'll say it and even people who are quite prominent and supposed to be quite smart, but you know, there's this real emotional thing, especially when it comes to guns. And I get that, you know, if you, they can look big and scary. Um, but yeah, when it comes to the U.S., I, I definitely support it. Zuby, I could talk to you forever. <laughs> I hope you come back to Nashville again so we can do this again sure. uh, as soon as possible. Uh, this was fascinating. I didn't get to ask you about the book you're writing. Uh, 
but you're as interesting as, as you come across on uh, Twitter and social media. It's great to meet you. Uh, continued success, and uh, we'd love to have you back. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it. All right, that's tomorrow. Uh, we'll see you next week. I want freedom. No negotiation, my sister, no relation. We all just want to have freedom. Sitting on a corner, never been alone. I'm breaking my back for freedom. Blessed, we are living, get back. We are receiving all the seeds when we all want to be free. We want freedom. I just want, I want to.